I don't know about you guys, but uh, I really value routine a lot. I like having a rhythm of things. In my, in my life, uh, my family, on Friday night, we get buy dinner somewhere. We go and buy, uh, oftentimes, I spoil my children. It used to be, we'd say, is it McDonald's, Taco Bell today? That was the, that was the choices. McDo's, the Bell, or Arby's. That was, a, you know, well, now the kids would be like, one kid will want Arby's, one kid wants McDo's, and so I'll just go to every fast food place on the way home. I'll have a, a, one thing for this kid, one thing for this kid, and one thing for me and Angie. It's a mess. But on Fridays, we, we get fast food, we come home, and we watch a movie together. So we have, just, we have routines in our life that just help us stay sane. Rhythm, routine. Um, my wife and I have a routine we try to keep that when the kids go to bed at 8 o'clock, we watch a something together, we watch a show. And through the years, we've watched different kinds of shows. Uh, my wife's in a, currently on a British kick, so we watch British murder mysteries almost every night. Um, they're all from, like, the 90s, so they're really badly made. But, like, in the sense, like, the cameras are fuzzy. It's square instead of widescreen. Um, but I rarely figure out who the murderer is. It's really good, murder mysteries. Um, but a show we used to watch back in the day, we used to watch a show called House. And we really enjoyed it. And it's a medical drama. And House starts out the same way every single episode. Every episode begins when you meet someone you don't know. There's some random person. They might be young or old, black or white, male or female. And they're doing something in the world. Maybe they're in their apartment. Maybe they're playing a sport. But they're doing something, and you're watching going, I know what's going to happen. Because every episode, the person you're watching falls over in pain because they're sick in some way. Sometimes like, their eyes will bleed or just crazy stuff happens. And the person falls down sick in some crazy way. And the episode then is House trying to figure out what causes sickness and how do we save them. There was like 10 seasons. And every episode had the same beginning. Some random dude or some random lady falling over in pain because they're sick. And that regularity made it kind of that routine was helpful. And a lot of shows have this. A lot of shows have their basic routine. And that's why we like our shows. We figure out the routine. It's like, it's like a comfy chair. And we watch it and go, oh, my show. Well, the, we're in the book of Judges today, the book of Judges. And Judges is like a 10-episode miniseries. I'm serious. And every episode has the same beginning. If you read Judges... If you look for one single phrase, this phrase is the hint that a new episode is beginning. And there's like 10 episodes in the whole series. Every episode begins with the exact same words. It says, and the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see this single line. Every time you see this, you know, okay, a new episode's beginning right now. And as you read Judges, so what happens? So Joshua, we'll do the whole thing. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. 12 sons are a pretty big family. They're 70 people strong. They all moved to Egypt, started having lots of babies, getting enslaved by Pharaoh for 400 years. God raised up Moses, the deliverer, to deliver Israel out of slavery. And 
So Jacob goes with 70, 70 people in his tribe. They leave Egypt with over a million people. And they wander through, they go through the, the Red Sea, into the wilderness, the mountain of God. They receive the Ten Commandments. And then now they come into the promised land. Under Joshua, the nation of Israel wages war, and they take the promised land. And when Joshua dies, their great leader, he says, once I'm dead, you follow God. They're like, we're going to follow God. We promise. He's our dude. And then Joshua dies. And every episode begins with them going back on their promise with them doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And the next thing that happens in every episode is God gives them over into the hands of their enemy. So they're evil in the sight of the Lord. God gives them over to some enemy, some invasion. And what do the people do once they're under the boot of one of their enemies? What do they do? What does Israel do whenever they're underneath oppression from someone else? They cry out to the Lord. Every episode, they're evil, they get smoked, and they cry out to the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't mean what I said. That's every episode is them crying out saying, Lord, we didn't mean it. We're sorry. Save us. And every episode, guess what? God saves them. God raises up a deliverer. God raises up a judge. Now, when I first read the Bible and I saw the book of Judges, I skipped this book because I thought the word judge to me when I was a kid was Judge Wapner. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was the people's court in the Bible. I thought it was court cases, and I'm like, man, that sounds boring beyond belief. I ain't reading that book. But judge is not a dude behind a desk with a gavel. In the Bible, a judge is a warrior leader. They're a general. Judge means general. The judges of Israel, they they are literally sword-carrying killers, okay? They're the leaders of the nation. As you read, as as the as the series goes forward, as you watch the, the, the judges TV show as it goes on, a funny thing happens as you watch the series. There's a new judge every episode, okay? And every episode ends real sad. Every episode ends with the judge dying. And everyone's like, oh, we promise to be faithful. And the episode ends, the episode begins with the same way. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. People always go back to their old ways. That's what happens in the Bible. And as you, as you watch judges, as you watch the episode, the TV show go forward, the judges become less and less likable. Like episode one the judge is straight up like Brad Pitt. He's really funny, charismatic. Why? Wow, this show's awesome. Then he dies. It's episode in season two, or episode two, it's going to be like, I don't know who's less than Brad Pitt. Jude Law, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Jude Law. Uh, <laughs> but it's, he's, he's less cool. And you're like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. As you, get, as you go through the, the series, episode eight, it's like, I don't know, it's like some kid who was the little brother on a show you watched when you were in the 80s. You know, it's some nobody. The judges become less and less heroic, less and less good. The last judge of Israel is Samson, and Samson's a train wreck. Like Samson, I don't know why we tell kids how awesome he is. Like, it's like, you know, Samson's like, he man, you should like him. 
Samson's terrible. He is terrible. He's a womanizer, dishonors his parents. I mean, he never at any point in his life bows, the knee to, bows his knee to God, ever. The judges get worse and worse and worse as the TV show goes on. You're like, this TV show's terrible. These people are terrible. And that's the point of the book of Judges, is a people removed from God are going to spiral further and further as a society from his good truth. Today we hang out with a guy named Gideon. As my brother Matt read, the episode begins, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. Israel is an agrarian society. They're farmers, okay? They don't go to Myers and buy meat in packages. That chicken running around, that's dinner. You know what I'm saying? They live close to their food source. They grew wheat. They harvested that wheat, turned it into grain, and that was their cereal. That's what they ate. So every year, Israel would plant their crops, and they would begin growing. And when the harvest came, Midian would invade, and Israel would flee to the mountains, and the armies of Midian would have like a, a month-long party and eat all the grain and eat all the flocks. So all your, you, you worked hard planting, watering, weeding, and you're in the mountains watching this army feast on the food you grew. And you're starting to starve, and you're in bad shape. And the people do what they do. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord is going to raise up a judge named Gideon. This is Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So what's Gideon doing? Gideon has stolen some of the wheat from the field early. And now wheat, wheat, you, you deal with wheat out in the open. Like in India, when you drive by the rice fields, the people will literally, they'll, they'll thresh out the rice on the roads. Literally, right? Because as you thresh out, the, uh, thresh out the rice or wheat, there is dust everywhere. Doing outside is really smart. But... Gideon knows if the Midianites see me doing this, they're going to kill me. So he's doing it on the inside. He's gone indoors, and he's threshing out the wheat where no one can see him, trying to get some grain for himself so they don't starve and die. It's like um, when I was a kid, when I was seven years old, my grandma bought me and my brother a Nintendo Entertainment System, and it was the greatest Christmas of all time. And, and my mom would put us to bed at night. And our room was upstairs in the attic of this house on Leed Street. She'd put us to bed, give us kisses and leave, go downstairs. We'd wait for a while till an hour had passed. We knew she was sleeping. 
We'd sneak out of our room, come out to our little like playroom where the little TV was. And our TVs back in those days, you had to pull a knob and turn it on. You'd go, and like, and you turn the knob for volume. You right? So we'd go out there, we'd turn the volume down and pull the knob so it turned on with no sound. And we'd sit there in the dark and play Mario to all hours of the night. And we played it in secret because if mama found out, we get in our booty spanked. You know what I'm saying? So we're there quiet, like, shh. We're playing Mario 2 player love and life in the secret, in the silence. Hope nobody finds me. Gideon is hiding out. He's trying to get some of this, gra- this wheat, threshing the grain, and he is hoping nobody finds him. He is doing this work in great fear and great secrecy. And in this moment, an angel comes and says these words. Verse 12, angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It's a very ironic thing to say to someone who's hiding from his enemy. Oh, Gideon, you brave, mighty man you are. He's like, you talking to me? Like, it's, it's like, who are you talking to here? <laughs> Listen to this. It goes on. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's like, man, where, where, where is God, man? He ain't with us. Hear all these stories. I don't see none of those stories in real life. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Again, he says to Gideon, listen, go in your awesome power. Go in your bravery and set the people free. And Gideon once again says, He goes, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon's like, go, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. So he complains, God, you never help us. You never deliver us. You're never around. And God's like, I'm going to send you, almighty man. He goes, hold on. My my clan, like we're the the black sheep of Israel, and among my family, I'm the littlest brother. I'm wee little. I can't do this you're going to ask me to do. And as you read the Bible, Gideon is going to show over and over again, he's a man full of fear and doubt. His life is literally punctuated. Every time God leads him to do anything, this guy's afraid. He's always asking God for a sign. He's always hesitant. He's always one step forward, two steps back. And the point I want to make about this is very simple. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God chooses the coward Gideon to redeem his people. And this is the story of the Bible. Often people take the judges and elevate them and say, these judges are superheroes, but they're not. The judges are awful, unfaithful bad people, but God chooses them to redeem his children, to redeem his people. In 1 Corinthians 1, we find this truth spelled out for us. In 1 Corinthians 1, we find this beautiful truth written down by the apostle Paul who says this, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God chooses weak, fickle, untalented like Gideon to do his work in the world. And to that I say, praise the Lord. Because God chose the weak then and he chooses the weak now. And if that's true, it means something, like, like if you read the Bible, think about Moses called to go and stand in the presence of Pharaoh and speak to the king of Egypt and demand, let my people go. And what does Moses say? How can I go? I stutter. I can't even talk. I will fall apart in front of this mighty man. And God said, who made your mouth and who made your lips? I will put my word in your mouth. You just speak it. God chooses people who are not up to the task. When we were kids, and you go, like, you go play, uh, we play football often up in the park at Williams over on the east side. And when you, when you get all the kids from the neighborhood together, it's very simple the rules how you play. There are two captains, right? These are the two best players of captains. And all the kids line up, and the captains pick one at a time. And there's a strategy, right? Now, some people went loyalty. You pick your brother first, your cousin first. I say forget that. The true strategy, you pick the fastest, strongest kid to be on your team, right? Because you want to win. As a kid, you only had one prayer on that line, Right? You don't want to be the last kid picked because that meant you're the lamest. That's just what it meant. So you'd be on that line. You'd be like, oh, Lord, not today. Let someone be worse than me on this line today because you pick the best player first, and it goes down from there. But thanks be to God. That's, not, that's how God chooses people. God doesn't, look at, God doesn't look at the world and say, okay, who's got the most skill, the most talent, the, the highest IQ, I'm going to pick them for my team, let the rest of them just kind of wander in their foolishness. No, God does not look at reality. As he said to David, men look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. God chooses people that are weak, that are untalented, that have troubled pasts, who have trauma, who have addiction. God chooses the most unlikely people to be his ambassadors for his name's sake. Think of the disciples. He chooses a bunch of fishermen. A bunch of cuss mouth construction workers become his crew. And you know Peter, I mean, you read him like, I know that guy. I work with him. Like, that, like these guys are just normal people. I'm just saying. And if that's true, it means we can stop trying so hard to make ourselves look impressive to others. I remember as a kid, there was a thing you'd do as kids sometimes. If you were unpopular, if you were really, um, if you wanted to make friends and have very many friends, one of the go-to moves was to lie about your life. You'd make up crap. You'd say things like, oh, man, this weekend, me and my family, we went to Disney World. Oh, yeah, it was so awesome. And you're lying through your teeth, hoping that your, lie, your story of lying makes people like you more. 
And we still do this. We're all grown up and we're still telling the same lies, hoping that our neighbors or our families or our friends think we're better than we are. Our social media accounts. We are all our own public relations advisors. We put a certain face in the world. This is my life. Look how beautiful it is. Our, our life might be a train wreck, but we're presenting this beautiful, perfect, manicured awesomeness. We still want people to think we're talented and great. We're all afraid of being found out. People are going to find out that I'm not that great. I'm not the best at anything. I'm bad at most things. My discipline is next to nothing. Like, people find out what I really am. Maybe they won't like me. But thanks be to God, God uses normal people with normal limitations to do his will. We don't got to be the best, the most likely to succeed. We can just be people. And then they say, God, you made me this way, and I thank you for how you made me. As the song says, I can't sing and I can't dance, right? I don't I can't quote the whole lyric anyway. It's a Paul Simon song. It's pretty awesome. Um, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. But why, why? It's a weird strategy. Why do this? God tells us why he chooses the weak to shame the strong. In, we go back to Judges. So Gideon is called by God, this fearful man. He gets a whole army together. And they're going to go to war. So we go to Judges 7, verse 1. Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So you have two armies separated by a valley going to go to war. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. He had an army of 32,000 people. That you feel like, oh, man, man, we're coming in force, baby. Then more than two-thirds of your army goes back home. And then God further shrinks it from 10,000 down to 300. That's crazy. And God says, I'm doing this because if you go with an army of 32,000 people and you win this battle, you're going to think to yourselves, I won this battle because I was smart. I was a good general because we were so strong as a nation. God's like, if I choose the weak, then I get the glory. God gets the glory. When God does the impossible, God gets the glory. When God chooses the most unlikely vessel for his, for his work, the world goes, man, God's, God's awesome. Because you ain't awesome, must be God. And that's a great thing. God gets the glory. I knew a man once who sat me down when I was a young pastor and told me his story, that he wants his ministry and had known great success. His church was full. He began traveling, speaking. His name began being known in the community. He was becoming a power. And he thought to himself, 
this church grows because I'm so awesome. He took the glory. I'm doing this. It's my power, my strength. This man, in his pride, burned that church to the ground in many ways. He told me, I was born, I was, God made me to do a work for his life, and I gave it all away in my pride and stupidity, and after I lost it all, I never preached again. And he told me the words, he goes, Ernesto, never touch the glory. If you have been chosen by God to, to do work in his name, and I don't mean like ministry, I don't mean being a pastor, I mean if you in your family get a chance to pray for a loved one. If at work someone talks to you, hey man, can I talk to you? Go through a hard time, can you pray for my wife for me? If God gives you those opportunities, don't go home saying, man, I'm stinking the best. I'm so awesome, God's using me every day. You go home going, man, Lord, I am. I don't deserve none of this, but thank you, Lord, for letting me see your power in my life. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. If you've been given some talent, some of us have, some of us are good at stuff. Um, <laughs> some of us are good at stuff. Um, I love when we worship together as a church. I love the band playing. I love singing in the front row. Uh, my one brother is a great drummer, one of the best in the, in the southeastern Detroit. My other, my other brother is a musical Einstein, plays every instrument, writes music, produces music. I failed intro to music twice when I was in college. <laughs> the genetics just skipped. They just skipped me. Like, like my father's a musician, and the blood just jumped over me. It was like, I give it to Tony. I'm like, oh, man. Um, and I, I mean, that just, that's, I, I, I don't speak the language. I can't, I try to learn music. I just can't. I, try to think, I, I watch YouTube videos on piano, and I just try to look at it and do the thing. It just, it's like, it's just like Cleon to me. I'm like, oh, like I just don't get it. That's okay. God didn't give me that gift, and that's all right. We are not all gifted in every way. It's why we need one another. You have something, I got something, you got something, and together, I'll quote Rocky, I got gaps, she got gaps, but together, we got no gaps. The church, we got gaps, but our giftings, we come together, it fills the gaps we have individually. God uses us, imperfect people. And when he uses us, he gets the glory. He deserves the glory. If God uses you to do something mighty, don't say, I'm awesome. Say, thanks be to God that he uses someone as lame and as fickle as me. Amen. There's a question that arises, though. If God redeems the weak, if God redeems my weakness, if God can take my foolish life and use it for good, then can't I just do whatever I want? I mean, if God's going to take whatever I do and use it for his glory, why even bother trying to be holy or faithful or obedient? And some Christians live this way. Some Christians live as though, you know what? God's going to forgive me, so it goes. And they just blaze a trail of their life. In Romans 6, that question is asked. 
I love, I love the way it's worded by Paul in Romans chapter 6. Galatians is too far. Corinthians, Romans. Acts, no, that's too far the other way. Romans, there you are. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do I keep doing evil so God's grace to keep covering my evil? He says, God forbid. God forbid. I jump down to verse 20 of Romans. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So when you were a slave to sin, it didn't matter what you did. You belong to sin. You belong to the enemy. But what fruit were you getting at at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the fruit of that life of sinfulness? He goes this. The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point I want to make is this. I want to go back to Judges. I want you to see how Gideon's life ends. I said Gideon was a coward. There's a story where God, when God first called Gideon, God told Gideon, Gideon, go to the, 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 the center square of your village and tear down the altar to Baal. There's an there's a, there's a altar to Baal in the middle of your town. You tear that crap down. You worship me and me alone. So Gideon, it says, he waits till nightfall when everyone's sleeping because he's afraid of people being mad at him. And whenever he's going to egg a house. He's waiting till dark when everyone's sleeping. And he goes out there, he's like, blah, blah, and he runs away. He knocks it down and hides in his house. He's like, everyone's like, who destroyed Baal's thing? He's like, man, that's crazy. I don't know who did that. Like he, he, and his father has to save his life because he's a coward. He's afraid of the villagers. He's afraid of everybody. He leads the nation to victory. They defeat the Midianites. The next year, they get to eat of their own crops. God delivers them. God uses this, this, this scared man for his glory. But you know how he ends his life? Listen to this craziness. Verse 2, uh, 8, 22 of Judges. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's pretty awesome. They say, hey, Gideon, be our king. He goes, man, you already have a king. It's the Lord. I won't be your king. He says all the right things. You know what he does next? He has a, he has a kid and names his son Abimelech, which in Hebrew means the son of the king. On one hand, he says, man, I can't be the king. He's like, hey, kid, we're the king. Like, he, he's living two lives. He's saying one thing and doing another which a lot of us love to do. I'm with Jesus. And then we go home, and we are with somebody else, man. I'm with my political party. I'm with my culture. I'm with my, I'm, I'm, I, I literally lead Jesus to church on Sunday, and I don't think of him again until I come back next Sunday. For many of us, in two Sundays. <laughs> Gideon 
the people are not happy with him saying, I won't be your king. So this is what he does. So Gideon says to them, I'll make a request from you guys. Every one of you give me the earrings from your spoil. From the war, give me the gold earrings you got, okay? 25. They answered, we will willingly give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, okay? Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. His ministry began destroying an idol. And the people never, never got over that. When he was an older man, he rebuilt a bigger one out of gold. And he set it up in the middle of the stinking village. Built this ephod was the, um, the holy vestment the high priest wore. It's a decorative piece of clothing. And they made it all of gold and they put it in the center of this village, like, God, we have a new God we can worship. Listen to what it says about it. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to all his family. Gideon never, ever dealt with his own fear and insecurity. After all he saw of God at the end, his sin... His compromise didn't just hurt him. It hurt his son and his grandson, his entire village, and the entire nation of Israel. Listen, what I'm saying is this. There, the gospel says, the good news tells us, there is forgiveness for sin. Thanks be to God. If I blow my life up, God welcomes me back even though I was the fool who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every new episode I film where I blow my life up, when I cry out to him, he welcomes me home. For this we give thanks. But here's what I'm saying. Sin has consequence. Some Christians think, well, says God forgives I'll just do what I want. Our sins affect us. They don't just blow us up. They hurt those we love. They hurt our communities. The things we do against God's good word hurt society. Hurt society. Let's say... I choose to live in rebellion to God my entire life. When I'm 80 years old, I finally am at my deathbed like, okay, Jesus, I'll finally meet you. I'll, I'll, I'll finally bow my head. Now, I'm thankful that old man or woman bows their head and meets Jesus. I'm grateful that happens. I'm grateful that happens. But that's still 80 years spent far from God. Far from the joy, the peace, and the goodness that God wanted to give the entire time. What I'm saying to us is very simple. There is forgiveness. But we as a people, we got to stop abusing grace so much. We've got to stop. I'll end with one story. When I was in college, I went to a Bible school that had a lot of rules, lame rules. 
I couldn't go to the movies at college. It was against the rules. So I'd go to the movies. I'd break the rule. And I'd come home from the movie. Because, you know, I remember my first semester, Star Wars Episode One came out, The Phantom Menace. I ain't missing that. So I went to see it. I came home from the movie, walked into the dean's office, and put my ticket stub on his desk like, but ow! I broke the rules. Punish me. That's how I was. I'm going to do what I want. Go ahead and punish me. I had this attitude that breaking the rules, like, you know, I used to drive home to see Angie when we were dating back in the day. I would drive so fast from Chicago. I, I, I could make it from Chicago to Kingston, Michigan in just over four hours. That's stupid fast, okay? I get pulled over all the time, okay? I got so many points on my license, I won the contest. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but in my mind, I'm like, I drive like two different times to see her and no one would catch me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. They give me the third time. And to me, it was just tax. Oh, you caught me. Here's my you know, $100 fine. Do, 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 do. And I didn't realize these, these sins had consequences. I just, I just pay the fine. I didn't give a rip. I didn't realize they were building up on my life. So I get married. One night, I go up to hang, out, hang out with the guys one night. We're playing some cards. Until Angie, I'd be home at like you know, 9 or 10. And my, back in those early days of marriage, my wife didn't like going to bed if I wasn't home. Because like I was the uh, night owl, she, or, and she wanted to, me to be in bed with her just so we were you know, together. So I told her, I promised her I'd be home by 9 or 10. Well, 10 o'clock comes, and I'm, I'm, I'm on fire. I'm, I'm winning some games. So I'm like, do I go home when I'm on fire? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm killing it. I think to myself, how mad is she going to be tomorrow? Like I think to, I, I, I weighed out my mind. You know, I'm like, I mean, she'll be mad, but she'll forgive me. I'm like, I mean, how much will her feelings be hurt? Oh, I mean, only this much. I'll say I'm sorry. I'll buy some flowers. It'll be fine. I just stay there and play all night. Because in my mind, I'll just do what I want, have my fun, and I'll deal with the consequences later. So I come home, and she's a little upset. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I wasn't. I was like, I want to do what I want to do, and you're mad. That's what it happens, you know? Um, but then she said something that's changed my life. She said something that changed my life. She said to me, I told her, I'll do whatever you want me to do to make it right. She said, if you don't feel bad about what you've done, I'm, no, I don't feel bad about what I did. I wanted to do it. I did it, and I'm paying the penalty. She's like, but if you love me, why would you want to hurt me? And I was like, I never ever thought of it like that. I was so selfish and self-centered, it was all about me. It wasn't about, am I hurting the one I love? Us Christians often live our lives like, I'll do what I want, hopefully the consequence is not too bad, and God will forgive me, so who gives a rip? The question is, if I really love the Lord, why do I want to hurt him? Why do I want to spit in his face over and over and over again? He said so clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I encourage the people. Let's stop being so cavalier with our sin. Let's stop bragging about our evil so much. It's not funny. It's not cool. It hurts us, and it hurts those we love. With that said, let us pray together. Father, and heading so much for your word that is true. And Lord, we are all Gideon. 
we're all of two minds. We praise you with our words and dishonor you with our lifestyles. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross that washes away our sins. Lord, help us to love you. Let our love for you grow so big in our hearts that our love for you is greater than our love for our sin. Deliver us from ourselves, Father. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.